Hello, welcome to Forward Guidance Live. I am your host, Jack Farley. Today is an emergency podcast because shit is hitting the fan, for, for lack of a better term. We have the S&P 500 down nearly 3%, and to those who wish to seek some safety in gold, nope, no safety there, down 2%. Bonds, nope, down even worse. TLT is down something like 3.4%, which I think is actually the worst sell-off since March of 2020 when the, you know, the, the, the swings were very wild. Uh, Alfonso Pecatiello, our very own at BlockWorks, host of the Macro Trading Floor and the Boiler Room, messaged me and he said, Jack, we need to do a live stream. I've been watching Joseph's stuff. I love Joseph. I love his analysis. The three of us need to get on a call. Uh, so without further ado, let's welcome uh, Alfonso Pecatiello and Joseph Wang. Uh, these are two gentlemen who have a lot of experience in markets. Uh, Joseph Wang was in the trenches doing quantitative easing uh, for many years at the Federal Reserve, senior Fed trader. And uh, Alfonso uh, Pecatiello, until very recently, was managing a $20 billion fixed income portfolio in Europe. And things in Europe, one could say, are actually even more crazy than what's going on in the U.S. Gentlemen, welcome to Forward Guidance Live. Thank you, Jack. Great hey, to be here, Jack. How are you doing, Joseph? Hey, hey, nice, nice. Thanks. I'm glad that you two could finally meet. Uh, Alfonso, I set the stage a little bit. Could you just explain, uh, number one, why did you want to have a meeting today? Well, you know, today is, is such a historic, historic day. And two, if I were to ask you the very open-ended question that's very hard to answer, why are things selling off? Why, is, why do we have such volatility in markets? What would you say? You always ask easy questions, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I like you. But the reason why I want to have a meeting today is that this is one of the what I call the margin call days. So uh, margin call days when you are levered up to your nose and you have drawdowns that are much larger than you, you would expect. And therefore you get so-called margin calls, which means you have to put up cash dollars um, to make sure that you can effectively delever and close your positions. And uh, let's say that I've been there with the risk manager stopping uh, me on the shoulders a couple of times. And uh, these episodes are generally uh, interesting to analyze. Um, despite being a margin call day, uh, Jack, as I call it, there are good macro underlying reasons why this sell-off has been going on now for the good part of six months. And I think we should discuss those too. Joseph, what do you, what do you say? I, I agree completely. Uh, today is going to be a margin call day. And you know, what I, when I think about this, one way to think about this is to think about it, let's say the Elon and um, Twitter deal, right? Elon wants to buy Twitter and he puts up a lot of Tesla stock as collateral. We all know where that price is, right? Now, suppose the price of a Tesla stock drops below a certain level, then all those brokers who lent him money against that Tesla stock are going to have to liquidate that, right? So you can have these nonlinear avalanches in, in happen. So that's the same with anyone else in the market. A lot of people play the market with a lot of leverage. And once they get to a certain level, their brokers are going to have to sell their asset holdings in order to make margin. And that, that's, uh, that makes prices go down. More people get margin calls. So you can have a very disorderly, uh, disorderly situation. Joseph, I want to read from your most uh, recent article on FedGuy.com. You say, the money supply is set to contract just as investors are clamoring for cash to hide from declines in both equities and bonds. That one sentence contains like three things that I want to dig into. But let's, let's uh, the most pressing issue, which is stocks and bonds going down together. You know, Alfonso, you, you know, you, you buy stocks, that's a risk asset, but you hedge it with bonds. So when stocks go down, your bonds go up. 
But as you know, investors are learning today, uh, and very painfully so, as well as up until this 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 very year, stocks have been gone, been gone, stocks and bonds have been going down together. So, uh, what do you guys make of that? How about we start with you, Joseph? Well, that means there's no place to hide, right? So, what was usually, let's say, people usually hide in bonds, as you noted, but possibly because inflation is rising, there's there's uh, you know, bonds are not the safe haven they used to be. People are selling bonds as well, possibly also because of quantitative tightening and you're changing marginal buyers. There's less, I guess, some uncertainty in the market as to who the marginal buyers would be. And so bonds are selling off. And so when this happens, there's really nowhere to go except cash. And strangely enough today, oil. Oil is actually green today. And I'm very, very keen to ask Alpha on his thoughts on that. Is oil the, the safe haven, the new gold? <laughs> but um, so going forward though, like you mentioned, Jack, we have three things that are happening, I think, when it comes to the Fed. We have the increased tightening from the front end that the Fed is going to do, and we can talk about what will happen at the Fed meeting. Um, we have QT, which is basically increasing the supply of treasuries, and we and this QT is also withdrawing liquidity out of the system. So there's a lot of tightening going on. I think the market is going to have to be uh, trying to price that going forward, and it's, it's, it's going to be, I think, a pretty bumpy ride. A bumpy ride, Alf. So, Jack, let's start from what's happening in the bond market. I mean, we have Joseph here, so I can't think of anyone better to discuss this. Let's say that you have, um, if you look at the last two or three decades, uh, every time that inflation expectations were below 2.5%, you had a negative correlation between long-term bonds and stocks. And why that is the case? Because as our system is effectively based on credit creation, if this credit creation is done at cheaper borrowing rates, so at easier financial conditions, credit can, can flow through the economy in an easier way, animal spirits can actually run, and we can get those inflation expectations all back up where we want them to be, you know, roughly between 2 and 2.5%. Two and so when these inflation expectations are below these levels, then there is quite a negative correlation between bonds and stocks, because if stocks are dropping, Jack, then what's happening is that you have the Federal Reserve that can accommodate they look at inflation expectation, they are relatively low, they can accommodate, they can ease, they can cut rates, they can do QE, and so bonds tend to rally. And therefore, you have this inverse correlation that actually works. It's, it's quite a great asset to have bond in your portfolio to, to protect from your drawdowns back then. Now, if you, if you now try to run the same analysis where inflation expectations are above 25 to 3%, you will soon realize that this correlation doesn't work anymore. This inverse correlation actually flips and becomes a positive correlation. So I sent you some charts, uh, Jack. I don't know whether you're able to, uh, to put them on the screens or not. Uh, if you look at five-year inflation expectations in the US, we were at roughly 2.8% in uh, October last year, but also in February this year. 2.8% is already relatively high. And then we spiked all the way up to 3.6% for the next five years. So th those are those are market implied expectations for inflation over the next five years, let's say on average over the next five years. The thing which is not in this chart is the distribution of these expectations, Jack. And the, the right tail where people are expecting inflation above 5% over the next five years is now becoming fatter. If you look at the options implied under these markets, it's roughly 15% now. 15% of traders expect inflation to average 5% in the US over the next five years. You can understand that when, in, when that is the case, the Federal Reserve cannot accommodate financial conditions anymore. 
cannot look at that side of the equation as importantly as they were looking at it before when inflation expectations were 2%. And so what happens is that they need to bring basically real interest rates to a higher level so that they can slow down inflation. And when that happens, bonds just don't work anymore. That's, that's a really good explanation, J just so the audience knows. So a lot of when you go up to the medium term in interest rates, a lot of it is expectations of what the Fed will do. So let's say where the five years is where the market expects the Fed will keep the overnight rate over the next five years. But as Alf mentioned, so when you have high inflation, you can't expect the Fed to be cutting rates to make sure that the stock market goes higher. When you have high expectations, your expectation is for the Fed to continue to raise rates. So right now what's happening is even though the stocks are selling off, the market expects the Fed to continue to raise the short-term rates to tame inflation. So that correlation, that safe haven trade that we used to have in a bonds won't exist anymore. Now stocks sell off, bonds also sell off because as Alf showed us, that, that chart, it's a beautiful chart, these expectation, inflation expectations are rising, Fed has to rise, increase interest rates as well. And I want to put up another chart uh, by ALF, which is, let's see, the market implied U.S. terminal rate. So while I get while I get that up, ALF, just explain what a terminal rate is. And also, I saw some comments saying that my mic is too loud. I turned the volume down. So yeah. folks, let me know in the comments if my mic is still too loud. <laughs> so we bond traders are weird guys. We work based on expectations, Jack. So what we're trying to do here is we're trying to price what is the highest implied point at which the federal funds rate will be through this hiking cycle. And we do this via forward interest rates. It can be pretty complicated. It's not really. What we do is we extrapolate through the curve what will be the highest interest rate the Federal Reserve will be able to reach in this hiking cycle. And you can see the market changed their mind a lot over here. So first they thought it was 1% and 1.5%. And then basically from March, April 2022, the market started to sink another tune. And we saw this market implied terminal rate move all the way up to 2.5%, then to 3%. And then we thought that was it, right? Until we got our last, last bout of volatility up to almost 4%. And now I get this question a lot of, how the heck can they hike to 4% Fed funds rate with such an over-leveraged economy, such an hyper-financialized uh, market? I mean, how can they hike to 4%? What's going on here is the market is chasing what will be the marginal cost of dollars that will cause demand destruction. What is the price at which you don't go and borrow to buy a new house? What is the price at which corporates have problems refinancing and therefore they have to shrink their business because refinancing it is too expensive? What is the point at which you are not going to get a lease to buy your car, your next car again? What is that cost of dollars adjusted for inflation that is required for you to basically pare down your spending and your animal spirits? That's what the market is chasing here. That's why it's bringing these rates as high as it will be necessary till demand really slows down. Yeah, Joseph, tell us about that. You know, for so long, we have heard when the interest when when, you know, the two year was at 60 basis points, we heard the Federal Reserve cannot hike, it's impossible. There's just there's simply too much debt. And the reason was, you know, along the lines of, of what Alf just said in terms of uh, corporations will not be able to roll over their debt. 
But uh, it seems as if at least the market now thinks that the Fed can hike. I mean, the terminal rate is at 3.9%, as, as Alf just showed. That is shockingly high. I, I think the two years, the highest since 2007. So, you know, Joseph, your view that the Federal Reserve will be very aggressive um, seems to have played out. So, Joseph, explain explain why the view that the Fed just can't hike. It's impossible. There's too much debt. Explain why that might be a little bit flawed. So I, I think there's a couple of ways to think about it. So when it comes to whether or not the stock of debt is too high, and I, that's a confusing point to me. I would divide that into both public debt and private debt. The public debt, as we know, it's, it's uh, you know, treasuries, federal government. That's never a problem. I mean, well, the Fed, the treasury can always just keep on borrowing like it's always done. Worst comes to worst, it'll just ask the Fed to buy it all, right? The private debt, I think it depends. So... For example, if you have a corporation, and yes, interest rates are going higher, what I would what I would say is that a corporation, a real economy corporation, has a lot of costs, right? So it has wages, it has rent, it has commodities, and so the interest rate going higher, it's it's like wages going higher. It's it's one of its costs going higher, and it's not even its biggest cost if it's a real economy corporation. If it's a financial company, yeah, it's going to be a, interest rate costs are, are a big part of a financial company expenses because a financial company just borrows a lot of money and invests but for a real economy it's not that i don't it's not a big part of its total expenses and also you have to keep in mind that we're in an inflationary environment so its revenues are going up as well so that's why the concept of a real rate is helpful it's uh, you know it's adjusts for inflation so the real rates are still very low so even if a company has higher wage costs higher interest rate costs its revenues are going up a lot as well Actually, there's a really good chart on uh, Fred from the Fed that basically shows um, corporate profits have gone basically parabolic and stayed at a very high level. So I think they'll be fine. But I think Elf makes a really good point about slowing the incremental activity because some sectors of the economy are super interest rate sensitive. Those include, for example, housing and, as Elf suggested, autos, right? So um, if you want to buy a home or you want to buy uh, a car, a lot of it is going to be financed based on, let's say, medium-term interest rates. As we know, mortgage rates were 2.5% in the U.S. Just, uh, just a year ago. Now they're almost 6%. That's going to slow down those industries. And housing is a tremendous industry. You build a house, you have to hire out a bunch of people. You need a lot of wood. You need, uh, you need like a new refrigerator and so forth. So that's a big part of the economy. So all that stuff is, is going to slow down. But, I mean, just in terms of rolling over the debt for a corporation, I, I don't worry about that. But it, it'll definitely slow the economy down as it's intended to do. That's, that's the whole purpose. But there is a point, right, Joseph, where interest rate burden on corporates that are struggling comes to a point where they, they essentially become zombie companies again, right? Like, you know, at, at what point do you think that is? Uh, is it, you know, 10%, 12%? I, I know that high yield now is up at like 7% with the risk free essentially at 3% and then the spread on top of that 4% ballpark. So if, if, if high yield companies, now they have to, when they bar, they used to pay essentially zero, you know, or 2%, something very super low. Um, now they pay seven if they want to refinance. At what point do you think it becomes a problem? I'm not really sure because it, it also depends, remember, on the level of inflation because even if when interest rates go higher, that suggests that every all the price is going higher, so the revenues are increasing as well. There's actually been a study from the Fed just, I think, two months ago, okay, three months ago, on zombie companies in the U.S., and they found that you know it wasn't a very high percentage. Now, 
I know there are people on Twitter who, who have charts showing that there's tremendous amounts of zombie companies floating around in the US, but you know, I, I, I don't really know what's, what's more accurate there, the Fed's research or what I see on Twitter. Um, but listen, we, 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 ha we have extremely low interest rates. We're going to go a little bit higher. Uh, I, I would be surprised if just going, let's say, from 2 to 4%, and suddenly these companies uh, just have to go out of A lot of companies have to go out of business. Alf, uh, if you have more to say on that, definitely, definitely feel free to say so. But I've got a question, which is, do you think that the two-year Treasury yield at, what is it, 3.3% now? Is it a buy? I know for a long time, like Joseph, you've been wary that Fed hawkishness or perceived hawkishness would continue those implied rate hikes. But, you know, we're at 3% now. The terminal rate's at 39 we're, we're breathing some pretty rarefied air in the fixed income market. So is it time to sort of buy the dip in the, in the short, in the, on, the, on either end of the yield curve, the short end, the long end, or the belly, which uh, is getting quite fat right now? With I believe the five-year Treasury yield is the highest yield on the entire yield curve, which, according to Michael Howell, uh, who did an interview with uh, Joseph and myself that aired this morning that people should definitely check out, is not a good sign. No, it's not time to buy bonds. And... Uh... This is a guy who has generally been on the bull side for, well, since I started running money, basically. Um, so you buy bonds when there are two or three of the circumstances possibly together. A, the economic growth impulse is slowing down. B, inflation and inflation expectations are slowing down. And again, I'm talking about the rate of change. We don't need to be in a, in, a, in a recession. We don't need to have deflation. We need things to slow down. So the, race of, the pace of change should slow down, either of inflation, realized inflation, inflation expectation, or growth, real growth. And the other is when the Federal Reserve is telling you to buy bonds, which means they're providing you with what I call a free carry optionality, which means that as long as you buy the bonds before they do or while they do together with them, you effectively are ensured to carry back to par or to make sure that you clip the coupons basically almost for free. So let me think, where do we stand now? The rate of economic growth has been slowing down on a rate of change basis, again, since basically one year. So we reached the peak of the economic growth impulse about six months later, um, the, the biggest fiscal stimulus was released in the US, which is not, of course, not a coincidence. And then you start to have a bit of a fiscal cliff, a bit of a fiscal drag, and then you slow down. And that's what we, we've, what we have seen, right? So from that perspective, buying bonds historically would have been a decent choice. The, the problem was that inflation at, in the meantime was picking up and the momentum of inflation, Jack, was picking up too. I put a chart on the macro compass. It's my, my newsletter, my free newsletter that shows that the central bank's reaction function, and Joseph can tell us more about that. People think of it as a linear relationship. So inflation or inflation expectation goes up and they will tighten a bit. Inflation or inflation expectation go down and they will ease a bit. The reality in my experience is that this will be true when we are in a certain status quo controllable regime where inflation is between one and two and a half to three percent. And then they will simply move in a linear fashion. But when inflation expectations are 3.5% and realized inflation in the U.S. has been 7% over the last 12 months on average, 7%, guys. When you reach these boundaries or of their controllable status quo, their reaction tends to be more than linear. They have to put themselves, as it said, in the bond market ahead of the curve or they need to try. Is this it? Yes, this is the chart. So you see on the x-axis, 
inflation and medium-term inflation expectations. And on the y-axis, that's the reaction function of, of the central bank. When you are between the red vertical lines, so inflation between 1% and 3%, let's say, if inflation is 1% and it's moving up, let's say, between 2 and 3%, they will tend to tighten. You see the linear reaction function. It's a linear line, linear blue line. The more inflation is higher, the more they will tighten and vice versa. But it's a linear reaction. Now we are extremely close to the right-hand side, or actually we cross the right-hand side, where inflation has been 7% for 12 months. Their reaction function, the blue line, will be non-linear. It will be convex. They will tighten much more linearly than normal. And why? Because they need to bring things back into those red boxes there, into these red lines. They need to regain credibility. Credibility is the strongest asset of a central bank. It's not QE, it's not rates, it's credibility first and foremost. If they don't have that, Jack, there is nothing they can do uh, that, will, that will make any sense. You can see that in Europe, where they, they have been losing credibility, and now they're telling us they will backstop uh, Italy and other weaker governments, and the market is just not believing them. So they will have to try and do something to bring back uh, you know, the, the market perceptions into those red lines. And, and so this is not an environment where you have to buy bonds because they will do more than necessary even. They will have to be even more aggressive to bring things back. And that is not a moment where you buy bonds. The third will be when they tell you explicitly to buy bonds. And Joseph can tell us more, but they're telling us to do the exact opposite via quantitative tightening. They will supply bonds to absorb to the private sector. And at the same time, they will reduce the reserves that banks own as well, which are one outlet under which they can recycle these reserves from a regulatory-friendly liquidity asset, which is the bank reserve, to bonds. Now, with QT, the Federal Reserve has been taking away these reserves from them and giving them more bonds to absorb, which obviously has to have a, a different marginal yield at that point. So I, I don't see any reason why I should buy bonds at this stage. Joseph, what, what do you think of Alf's wait, chart? I, yeah. I, I, yeah, I was just going to say that that's a really good chart. Just so you guys know, Alf's chart is spot on, right? So the Fed usually was doing 25 basis points. Now it's doing 50, right? It's becoming, and there's whispers, and I think they might even do 75 in the future. So again, it's, it's moving non-linearly. It's going higher and higher. Um, I would ask Alf, do you think that, you know, the ECB will get the memo and maybe start, start doing something? Maybe you need to send them this chart? Uh, uh, I think they, uh, I think they got the memo, Joseph. But we in Europe are um, there is such a weird structure over here. So you need to to make sure that it, an Italian governing council member will agree with the Finnish or a Dutch governing council member. That that is very complicated to do, and so it's a very consensus based um, outcome. Europe is in, a, in an extremely tricky situation, if you ask me. Uh, so one of my trades, uh, they're public. I am short Italian government bonds. I mean, I'm Italian myself, but honestly, there are no flags when it comes to markets. You, ha you have a, um, a situation under which inflation expectation in Europe are 3.5% for the next few years. Same situation as per the US. Different drivers of these inflationary pressures, but a similar out-of-control, out-of-status-quo controllable regime in the chart that we showed before. But at the same time, you have an economy which is weakening much faster than it is in the US because of the Russia-Ukraine situation and because of other idiosyncratic situations that we have in Europe. 
And then you have an infrastructure under which you have to set one monetary policy for 19 different jurisdictions. So the equilibrium rate for Italy is very different than the equilibrium rate for Germany. And still, the European Central Bank has one rate to set. And so obviously, now that they have to set that rate towards a more hawkish level to make sure they can send a signal to the market, the, the effect is, is, is disproportionately bad for the weakest balance sheet components of Europe. Unfortunately, Italy, Greece, Spain, and all the known suspects. And there is no credible way Joe, under which they can just show up and say, oh, we have a facility, we're going to backstop Italian government bonds. To backstop Italy, Greece, Spain, etc., you need to expand your balance sheet. There is no other credible backstop than to do what the Bank of Japan is doing. This is the line in the sand, 25 basis point. My balance sheet is unlimited. Yours isn't. So if you want to try, or well, it can be unlimited, but you have stop losses and value at risk and other problems and a risk manager. The bank, the bank of Japan doesn't have a risk manager. They can buy as much as you want. If the ECB would say this is the line in the sand for Italian government bond spreads, the only way to defend that will be to be ready to expand their balance sheet, to print reserves and buy BTPs, buy Italian government bonds. That will be the least credible thing you can do to fight inflation right now. They're in a corner. It's very tricky. Actually, just to so note, in the U.S., there are different reserve banks as well. And historically, they would actually have different interest rates, kind of like in, in Eurolab, and to adjust for the different economic situations in each region. And it's ultimately, we evolved over time to be just one interest rate. Um, but, you know, it's, it's like you mentioned, it's, it's not necessarily suitable for all regions in, in the country. But I guess what's most helpful is having a common fiscal authority, being able to redistribute resources. So it, it, in that sense, it does make monetary policy a bit easier here than, than in the Euroland. Yeah, pretty much. And that, that makes the European situation more complicated because Italy doesn't, doesn't have the mandate to try and solve this situation with the, from the fiscal perspective either because but it's on, bound. Sorry, uh, go ahead. On one side, though, it's just a one mandate central bank, though. It's just, just prices. So do you think that they would be willing to you know, just induce a deeper uh, recession simply just to tame prices since you know that's their mandate is simply in price price stability price stability so what i what i say that the ecb has a hidden dual mandate it has a price stability and uh, avoid the euro implosion mandate the euro implosion avoiding the euro implosion mandate is basically a geopolitical uh, imperative for Europe. I mean, the, the European construct is too important to let go. So people are telling me, well, you need to backstop spreads right now because otherwise the euro will continue to weaken. That is one example of how a failure, how big of a failure was the last ECB meeting. They tried to be hawkish. They tried to project that they're going to do something about inflation, project a higher terminal rate. Normally, the market will reward this with a higher currency level against other pairs. And the euro has been depreciating since then. It was 107 before the meeting. It's now 104. So, and, and that, that goes to say how complicated the situation is in Europe. And the problem as well with Europe, guys, is that we tend to make decisions not in a proactive way, but in a reactive way. So because of this consensus-based mechanism, things have to get really, really, really bad in Europe historically before politicians are closed in, in chamber and are, you know, forced to take a decision. And unfortunately, yeah, the release valve in this case is Italy, I'm afraid. And I think it's important to note that in the U.S., quantitative easing serves something of a supplementary function where 
you know, the, the people, uh, the tre treasury does not need quantitative easing in order for the treasury to sell bonds. Uh, you know, if, if we were to make a salad company, our market company for our salad company that has no revenue would only be 40 million instead of the obvious, you know, 40 billion that it needs to be under quantitative easing. But, you know, we could still sell uh, tons of bonds. Um, but as you say, Alf, the spreads uh, for, for Italy, you know, you start to see true stress in sovereign debt if the, the if the ECB backs off, which is, uh, you know, the ECB is playing with a higher stakes game. Uh, gentlemen, uh, gentlemen, I want to ask you about quantitative tightening. Well, first of all, actually, Joseph, the FOMC meeting that is going to hear uh, on Wednesday in two days, June 15th, so everyone was expecting 50 basis points. Now the market is pricing in something like a 30% chance of a 75 basis point hike, mm -hmm. a triple hike. And I'm even seeing some, you know, a Bloomberg article about a possible 100 basis point hike. How how possible are these scenarios? Because the, the Federal Reserve has committed through forward guidance, name of the podcast, to you know, a, a 50 basis point hike on this one. And typically they don't go back on their word, right? I, th I think there's a 0% chance for a 100 basis point hike. Funny that they invest, you know, the way that this works, that some investment-based strategists will say something ridiculous just to have more attention. Uh, I'm sure Elf knows as well. It's, it's yes. kind of fun. <laughs> um, so I, it's interesting that the market is pricing in some chance of 75. I think that's very, very unlikely. So the way the Fed works is, you know, it's as you mentioned, Jack, is through forward guidance. And it's also that the Fed doesn't like to surprise the markets. So Powell has been guiding expectations toward 50 basis points. 50 basis points is what it will be. But more importantly, whether hiking overnight, that's not really where the tightening comes. The tightening comes in how it guides the market forward. So just by doing 50, it can, Powell can also be very hawkish by guiding towards a higher neutral rate, or basically just uh, suggesting that he's gonna hike faster and for, for a longer time. So the way that he would probably do this is he'd probably either a, I think he would suggest that the neutral rate is higher than he thought it would be. You know, he's been talking about two and a half, three as, as maybe where the neutral rate is. It doesn't really make sense because inflation keeps going higher. When inflation keeps going higher, the neutral nominal rate also goes higher. He could say that, or he could actually be super honest and say, we want to go above neutral because we have a lot of inflation. We need to raise rates to restrictive. So that goes, that goes above neutral as well. And he probably, I think, is going to open the possibility of getting there faster. So he can do, let's say, 75, maybe, maybe just as out there, putting out the possibility of 100 basis points just to make sure the market is, is listening to him. So that's, I think, largely in the market to some extent. So the market, after the CPI print, has been pricing in a more aggressive path. Um, I think the terminal rate, as as I've showed earlier, is just a bit under 4%. Um, I think that's probably not high enough, but the Fed moves slowly. And so I think that'll be a start. And as time goes on and the Fed figures out that, you know, maybe inflation is just not going to go down itself magically, uh, we might be able to see some serious fireworks in, in, in the market as the Fed begins to guide towards a terminal rate, maybe above 5%. Alf, serious yeah. fireworks? 0% chance of 100% hike, 0% chance of a 75 basis point hike, 100% of a 50 basis point hike. People are fixated on uh, today. Uh, Joseph is totally right. The bond market works via expectations. I said it before, we're a weird species, but also the bond traders. But also um, 
financial conditions through us, the private sector, the borrowers, they are indeed um, passed through to us through the, this expectation channel. Because if Powell now guides people towards a terminal rate which is higher, as Joseph is saying, what happens is that these expectations will be cemented into two years yield, five years yield. And those five years yield and two years yield are exactly used as the benchmark for us to borrow. They overlay, banks overlay a credit spread on top because we are not the government, we, we have a credit risk. And this will be the level at which we will have to fund the marginal cost of dollars for us, the borrowing cost for us. So if Powell wants to tighten, the best possible way to do that over time, the most impactful way to do that over time, rather than do 100 basis points right now, would probably be to signal that this hiking cycle will be longer and will be protracted to levels that will basically make the borrowing cost for the private sector being higher for longer. It will discourage people to access credit that cheaply for a long period of time, which probably will hit demand even uh, for, a, for a longer period of time. That is what the Fed might need to actually slay the inflation dragon. One other way to look at it is the, the curve slope. And I, I've been very vocal about this for months now, since I think February or January. Uh, I use the OIS curve, but there is no, in this case, no reason to be very, very technical. We can look at the treasury curve for simplicity. So I put up a chart of the yield curve slope between 10 year and two year. And for people following us, why do I put that on? If the Federal Reserve would now signal that they need to hike above neutral rate to a restrictive territory. So A, the neutral rate needs to be higher and the market is guiding Powell towards that. This is the chart, right, of terminal rate be rising higher, higher and higher. Let's say that Powell bites and says, well, you guys are right, it's 4%, let's make it 4.5%. Uh, by the way, if that is your new uh, neutral rate, call it 4%, in order to slay the inflation dragon, you normally need to hike above neutral rate. You need to be restrictive. You need to make sure the private sector feels the heat for a longer period of time. And that is reflected in two-year yields because the high, a, a, an above-neutral hiking cycle lasts, it's relatively short, normally speaking, because you damage the private sector so much, you, you are restrictive. The word says it itself, right? And by being restrictive, you're able to shrink demand faster than usual. And that's why these cycles normally are better reflected in a two-year yield than in a five-year yield. So let's look at two-year yield against 10-year yields. And why 10-year yields, guys? Because... If I, if I am restrictive now, there is a higher chance that over the next five to seven years after that, I'll have to ease things down. I'll have to reflect the fact that I destroyed demand right now to bring inflation down. This will be reflected in long-term yields that will reflect the next 10 years. The next 10 years will have to be pretty shallow if I destroy demand right now, right? So the yield curve slope actually flattens because of that. Front-end yields go up a lot. Long-term yields tend to reflect this weaker growth and weaker inflation prospects once you succeed in slaying the inflation dragon. Now I put up this chart. This goes all the way back to the 80s. And you can clearly see the cycles in this chart. Where the red spots are, are the last two times that the Federal Reserve went and hiked seriously above back then estimated levels of neutral interest rates. Jack. That's what Joseph was, was talking about before. And you can see how the two stance curve has inverted all the way to negative 50, 70, 80 basis point in these cycles. Early 2000s, 2006, 2007, by tightening monetary policy, they then blew the dot-com bubble and blew the real estate bubble or helped 
blowing away these bubbles by making borrowing extremely expensive for the private sector at that point. Right now, we are at eight basis points. If, as Joseph is saying, we are in a situation in which they seriously need to be above neutral for longer, this curve will have to be inverted all the way to negative 50 basis point, all the way to negative 60 basis point. And then you will probably have much clearer signals that demand is slowing down, that inflation expectation is slowing down. But guys, if we go inverted negative 50, negative 70, when, when the economic growth is slowing down, there's much more pain to come in credit spreads, in the weakest balance sheet companies, even in equities, the only positive assessment I can make for risk assets is if, for some reason, inflation starts to slow down by itself, without the Fed having to push on the pedal so strong, it just slows down. It might happen. I don't know. If that happens, then the Fed can just chill out a bit. If that doesn't happen, the reaction function needs to be the one that Joseph is, is describing. They need to somehow shock and awe. Volker style. It doesn't need they need to do 100 basis points today. They can do it over time by making sure we know that borrowing costs are going to be higher for longer. A few observations I'd like to share before I pass it on to Joseph, which is the Federal Reserve was hiking quite aggressively from the late 90s into 2000. So just because the Federal Reserve, you know, the Federal Reserve is powerful, but not omnipotent and markets can go the way that they're going to go. And also, likewise, about the inversion of the curve. I think the inversion of the curve happened in what, 2006? Yeah, the 210 right. spread. So we're relatively early. So that on the surface sounds bullish, but it actually is bearish because that means that the Federal Reserve can hike for way, way more before we actually you know, have a recession. Um, so Joseph, tell us what you think about what Alf said, what I just said, as well as just your thoughts on the yield curve. How worried, you know, based on your time at the Fed, how worried is the Fed uh, about a yield curve inversion, the 210 spread, the three-month 10-year spread, the 530 spread, whatever. I, I recall, you know, we sort of in the macro community outside of the Fed, some of us, you know, take it as a given that the yield curve is the truth, the bond market is the truth. But I, I remember you saying earlier that you and, and some others in the Fed uh, disagree. So I think a lot of people in the macro community look at, say, curve inversion and suggest the recession is coming. And if you look at ALF's chart, it has a pretty good track record, right? So oftentimes, let's say when the twos, tens invert, you go into recession. Um, so it's it's been pretty reliable the past few decades. Whether or not the Fed believes that, it doesn't. I mean, so that's kind of one of the strange disconnects between what's inside the Fed and in the macro community. So Powell was actually asked this pointedly, at, uh, I think maybe a month or two ago. And he's like, yeah, well, I mean, we look at this, but we also look at a lot of things. And he, does not, was, he wasn't very clear what the economic intuition of it was, right? So the front end of the curve, it's basically just what the Fed does. And the back end of the curve, that's just supply and demand. So I actually agree with that. And I think it's not so much that the two cents is, is not a good indicator. Instead, I think there are structural changes in the markets pre and post GFC. And that pre GFC, you had a lot of private uh, investors in and they were kind of actively putting their views into the market post GFC. A lot of things are changed, you know. So, for example, you have a lot of government involvement that distorts things, obviously. The other thing is that you have a lot of, and Elf has talked about this as well, you have a lot of people buying for regulatory reasons, right? You have banks, you have pension funds and so forth. So those guys, they're, they're, not, really, they're, they're not really expressing any views about economic conditions. They're just buying because they have to. And furthermore, 
you know, the supply of things in the longer, long, long end, that's all political. It has nothing to do with economics. It has to do with what Congress feels like doing. So for me, it's hard to, to have any economic intuition um, when you're looking at the, the slope of the curve. So uh, it's not that it's, it's not that it's doesn't have anything. I think it just has less information than, than the past because of these structural changes in, in the markets. And I, I suspect actually that, you know, curves can invert and they can uninvert, right? A few months ago, two cents inverted and then they uninverted. Yeah. I think as QT goes forward, maybe they uninvert again. Maybe the 10 year goes you know, higher. You know, Joseph, I really sympathize with your uh, risk assessment that QT can temporarily uninvert yield curves in a very aggressive way even it really depends how you run it but if the federal reserve joe let's say they would come up and they would say we don't like this inversion because then people freak out we'd like to steepen the yield curve let's assume they say that i can they can easily uninverse the yield curve by qt if they wanted to they could for instance think of a, a reverse operation twist and they would say okay we're gonna keep the balance sheet shrinking by the same amount but we're going to actually reinvest more in the front end uh, of, of the bond curve. And we're going to actively sell some of our longer duration bonds that we have. And, and, and some people tell me, yeah, but off, I mean, look at the Federal Reserve balance sheet holdings. They are not so concentrated in the long end. They don't have a lot of 30-year bonds. So they can't see the yield curve like that. And that's because you guys haven't traded bonds. I'm just kidding. But they, they can steepen the yield curve because 1 billion of a 10-year bond is a very different animal than one billion of a two-year bond. The duration risk that is in that 10-year bond is roughly five times as big as a two-year bond, roughly again. So what that means is that for me, as a former portfolio manager, to take on that billion, I need to have a value at risk which is much larger because the price wings of that 10-year bond are, are much larger than a two-year bond, which means that the same billion of notional will absorb a lot more risk budget from the private sector compared to the two-year bond. So even if the notional size does, is not a lot, if they wanted to, it wouldn't take a lot to, for markets to have to make space for that new risk they need to absorb. And to do that, they need to sell the bonds, basically, make space for the new ones coming. And that would make the price of those bonds go down and the yields go up and then mechanically steepen the yield curve as well. From this perspective, on a short-term basis, as, as Joseph says, the Federal Reserve can have quite a strong impact on federal on, on yield curve dynamics. And the same can be from a private sector perspective. Regulation can have a massive impact on these yield curves. So the chart that I plotted before was not to say, hey, it's below zero. So it means it's not a binary outcome. But what, I, what I'm more interested in is the trend. If the yield curve has been flattening for a year relentlessly, it's telling us that you know, the bond market is basically saying we are going to tighten above neutral, we're going to get restrictive, such that the long end of the yield curve is reflecting this restriction. And uh, I think this might have, this trend might have room to go as the Federal Reserve needs to become more and more aggressive. Last thing I'm going to say is the bond market is guiding Powell. That's what's happening over the last six months. You didn't have Powell reprise the bond market very often. You had the bond market repricing the Federal Reserve function very often. So right now we are having, we are discussing us whether the new terminal rate has to be four or five or three and a half. Why are we discussing is because the bond market is asking us to discuss by a repricing the terminal rate 
And that's what Powell will have to answer because when he shows up to the wire, guys, on Wednesday, the market expectation will come in pricing a 4% terminal rate. What does Powell want to do? Does he want to confirm, affirm those market expectations? Does he want to see them higher? Does he want to see them lower? Anything he will say will have to be measured against those expectations. So the market has been riding Powell. Let's see what he says on Wednesday. Uh, Alf, you, you got to go now, right? Yeah, pretty oh. much. Uh, uh, wonderful. Well, right. well, I'll just say, um, but before we go, uh, <laughs> I, I've been talking to Joseph a lot. So, you know, I, I'm influenced a lot by Joseph. Alf, I think kind of the Fed has been influencing the bond market, which has been influencing the Fed. I, I think, you know, oh. the Fed has been a little, little mutterings here, a little mutterings there when they want the terminal rate to go up. And when they say maybe it's gone a little down, you know, Bostic goes out and, and starts being dovish. But uh, <laughs> I'll give Joseph the final word. But before I do, um, make sure you follow at MacroAlf, uh, uh, at FedGuy12, them on, on, on Twitter. Uh, Joseph's writings can be found at FedGuy.com. Uh, uh, um, Alf's writings are at the Macro Compass on, on Substack. Uh, and also, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, subscribe to the Blockworks YouTube channel. I think this is actually a historic day. We got uh, the most live viewers ever, I believe. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you, Joseph. <laughs> thank you, Alf. Uh, most of all, thank you, everyone, for watching. Joseph, I'll give you the final word. Man, I, honestly, I'm pretty sure Powell thinks he controls the bond market. <laughs> so oh, yeah. I, I think he would look at this and he's like, the bond market thinks I will do this. And you know what? If he doesn't like it, Powell will say, I don't like it. In fact, I want to be super dovish. So uh, it doesn't really matter, though. I mean, they influence each other. The Fed definitely takes into account what the, what the market is saying. But uh, I think it's been a great conversation, and I think there's so much happening in markets. This is a great time to be in macro. Um, guys, definitely keep following Elf. Keep following Jack. Subscribe to Elf's newsletter. Great content. Really, really great tutorials on how the market works. And I think going forward in the next few months are going to be probably the most exciting months since the GFC. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, no. at least since COVID. <laughs> COVID was pretty cool. Joseph, you now made my life difficult because my parting words would have been that I think in this room, you have the best macro interviewer, Jack Farley, on the street and one of the best macro analysts, which is you, Joseph. If people haven't read your book, they must. It's in my thread of the seven most important books that anybody approaching macro should read, Central Banking 101. Go check it out. That's all I want to say. I have to run or my wife will divorce me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Alf. All Thanks right. so much for watching, everyone. Take care.